Well, even after Paul Simon had become famous as being part of the Simon and Garfunkel duo, he was invited over to a, um, a soiree at a, a French composer's house, a well-known French composer with a bunch of other celebrity singers. And when he and his wife, Peggy, came to the door, for some reason, maybe he didn't recognize them or whatever, the, the host called them um, Betty and Elle. And didn't realize it was Paul Simon, um, didn't recognize him, I guess, and for the rest of the evening referred to that couple as Betty and Elle instead of Peggy and Paul. And so uh, he thought this was quite funny, uh, Paul Simon did, and it gave him an idea for a song that um, I'm sure you've heard of. The song uh, goes like this, why am I soft in the middle now? Why am I soft in the middle? The rest of my life is so hard. I need a photo opportunity. I want a shot at redemption. Don't want to end up a cartoon in a cartoon graveyard. Bone digger, bone digger, etc., etc. And then it gets to the chorus. Gets to the chorus. If you'll be my bodyguard, I can be your long lost pal. You can call me Betty. And when you call me, Betty, when you call me, you can call me Elle. That's where that comes from. I always thought it was Eddie, but uh, because in the movie, in the video, it's Chevy Chase and him, but it's, it's Betty and Elle. And a lot of people don't know what that bodyguard song is about. You can be my bodyguard, and I can be your long-lost fella. Well, Paul Simon himself said in an interview that that was about a trip that he took to South Africa. And when he was in South Africa, he had this just the, the, the sense of the vulnerability of the people and um, how they lived in fear and in danger. And what happens is in the, the township areas, the informal settlements in South Africa, the, the police don't go there. And the police that are there are often corrupt. And there's a town, um, to give you an example, most towns in South Africa have um, a police officer for every 259 people. But in the informal settlements, it can be as many as 1,000 people per police officer. And there's one town that decided to do something about this themselves, where the, the citizenry began to be their own bodyguards. And everyone decided to stand up for themselves and not trust the government to be able to provide security for them. And this is the town of Kailicha. Kailicha has one of the lowest crime rates in one of the areas that has one of the highest crime rates. And it's because they don't wait for the police to be their security. They take matters into their own hands. In one sample year, 2012, there were 18 crimes committed in the town. All 18 crimes were taken care of by the citizens. All 18 crimes, including everything from theft to rape, to murder, all ended with the same sentence, instant death penalty. Uh, no, this isn't legal. <laughs> it's not accepted, but that's what happens in Kailicha. You steal something from someone else, and they, they torture the thief until he reveals where he has hidden the stash. Then they find it, which proves that he was guilty, and then they kill him. And the way that they do these executions most often is by putting a tire around the person filled with gasoline, set them alight. They call it necklacing. Um, Numfundu Mugabe, she works for the Center of the Study of uh, Violence and Reconciliation. She said, violence is a cry of desperation. During our research, people said to us, we feel that violence is the only language that the government understands. They will only come when they see the smoke. Speaking of the smoke from the, the necklacing. It's really tragic when people don't have somebody to look after them, when the people have to take matters into their own hands. It's more tragic when it appears to be the only thing that's actually even working. 
We as Christians know that this is not something that we should ever do. We should never take matters into our own hands. But thankfully, we also know that there's a power that we can appeal to who will look after us because he cares for us. So turn your Bibles to Psalm 68 for part two. God is a justice warrior. Part two. I'm not going to read the whole psalm. Um, It's a lengthy psalm, and we did that last week. But just to remind you that this is a notoriously difficult psalm to outline because the Salah breaks happen sometimes in the middle of a verse, and the themes are a little hodgepodge. And so um, some people refer to it as a patchwork psalm. And so it's kind of like these themes being patched together. And yet there is this running theme that, that God is a warrior who fights on behalf of those who are needy. He's a protector as well. And so we're going to see this theme again. Um, and I'm going to pick it up. Well, just to remind you what we saw last week, the, the godly desire for justice, God's heart for the helpless, and then this week we'll see God's resume of help and God's violence and God's triumph. We'll see all of those. Um, so verses 1 to 6, just to remind us what we learned last week about the godly desire for, for justice and that God has a heart for the defenseless and the helpless. God shall ri- arise, his enemies shall be scattered. And those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad. They shall exult before God. They shall be jubilant with joy. Sing to God. Sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is Yahweh. Exult before him. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. God settles the solitary in a home. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a parched land. So that's what we saw last week. Now we're going to move into God's resume of help. And and, uh, from verses 7 to 19, we see that God shows his resume. He shows his past help as a protector and as a provider. Verse 7, we see God's provision. Oh God, when you went out Before your people, and when you marched through the wilderness, Selah, the earth quaked. The heavens poured down rain before God, the one of Sinai, before God, the God of Israel. Rain in abundance, O God. You shed abroad. You restored your inheritance as it languished. Your flock found a dwelling in it. In your goodness, O God, you provided for the needy. So notice the mention of God, the one of Sinai here. Sinai is going to be a theme for the rest of the song. Sinai is the mountain on which God delivered the Ten Commandments to Moses. After Israel had come out of Egypt, they were now in the wilderness, right? And before that, they they stop off at Mount Sinai, and they, they have this revelation from God. So that's going to become important. Now, this is a psalm written by David, and many believe that this is a psalm that David wrote at the time to celebrate the movement of the ark from the house of Obed-Edom to Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So what's going to start happening in the psalm now is there's going to be a subtle um, imagery play, a nuanced play between the mountains of Israel, including Sinai um, and Bashan and other mountains, and then Mount Zion in contrast. But for, for now, what I want to focus on here is this concept of God um, providing He's looking after people through provision. And it talks of the rain in abundance. You, you pour down rain. You remember what happened here. This was when Israel's uh, in the wilderness. 
the Exodus, so, so what this psalmist is doing, what David's doing is what a lot of psalmists do. They point back to the wilderness wandering and the provision of God and the Exodus coming out of Egypt as the reason they should trust him in the future. So they point back to that. And throughout the scriptures, the Psalms, you're going to see that the prophets even, they rely on the fact that this thing happened in the past means that we can trust God to provide in the future. So the Exodus is to the Old Testament Israelites what the resurrection is to the New Testament saints. It's a very, very significant event. Now, I don't mean that soteriologically. I don't mean that um, in its atoning work. I just mean in its um, historical significance. Because the, the resurrection proves that everything we believe about Jesus is true. So whenever you're doubting anything, you go back to the resurrection. If the resurrection happened, and it did, there's all of these implications about what we need to believe. But the Israelites who lived up until Jesus before the resurrection, they didn't have the resurrection. They had the Exodus. That's what they were looking for. And, and the people before the Exodus really had nothing. Um, they just had faith, raw faith that God was going to look after them, the promise made to Abraham. But as for an historical event where something happened, where they saw, oh, our God can intervene and do supernatural things and provide for us when we have need, that happened during the time of the Exodus and the wilderness wanderings. So that's what David's talking about here in this psalm. So just let me ask you, how often do you meditate in your quiet time in the Word on the significance of God's provision to Israel in the wilderness. It's really a part of the Bible story we take for granted often. Um, you know, it's just something that happened. Uh, it's the Prince of Egypt story. It's the, the most common flannel graph thing. You've got there Moses with his Ten Commandments and the Ark of the Covenant, and you've got the manna from heaven, and you've got the, the water rushing out of the, the rock. And... But did that stuff actually happen, or is that just a story? Because if it actually happened, that's pretty amazing. And that's what Bible, the Bible is claiming, is that this is truth. This is an historical event. And if it happened, then you, just like the psalmist and all the other Israelites, can look back to that event and say, this is the kind of God that we serve. This God who provides for his people. In something as simple as rain. Think about what rain is. The one thing you need more than anything else, other than oxygen, which is free for everybody, it's just around you, um, is water. And so God just rains that free from the heavens as well. And he moves it all the way from the oceans and then he desalinates it in the air and then he dumps it wherever you need it. And, and when he withholds it, people suffer and they have to cry out to him because there's really nothing you can do about it. And so this is what this little section here is talking about is God's provision. The, the, the Israelites learned this in amazing ways. I mean, they were, they were all happy about the Exodus. They were coming out of the Exodus and God wiped out the Egyptians and they were absolutely ecstatic and grateful for about 24 hours. And then they realized that in the wilderness, in the desert, there's not like a line of falafel stands out here and soda fountains. And they start grumbling to God. You've taken us out of Egypt to let us die in the wilderness? And so God rains carbohydrates down from heaven for them. He sends a, a swarm of protein every morning for them. And then he gushes hydration out for free from a rock just by speaking to it or hitting it. It's, it's miraculous. It's literally miraculous. It's breaking the laws of nature so that he can intervene to provide for his people. And think about this. In the New Testament, one of the proofs of Christ's deity that the 
evangelist put on display for us is the fact that he was able to do this. He was able to break the laws of nature to provide for people to eat. The, the loaves and the fish, the feeding of the 5,000, the feeding of the 4,000, the water into wine, the, the coin in the fish's mouth that Peter pulls out. Jesus was able to operate in the world in such a way that he was in charge of making sure people were provided for. And that proved that he was God because up until then, everybody understood only God could do that. And how did they know that? Because it happened in the Exodus. I'm sure you have a testimony of God's past provision in your life that gives you confidence in the future. And you need to learn to use that, whatever it is. So each of us have different ones. Something that God did for you, your, your Exodus story, your manna from heaven that God provided Maybe not through a miraculous way, but through circumstances and providence and the generosity of his people, whatever it was that God provided for you. And I want you to think of that whenever you fear of God's provision not being there in the future. And it's almost silly because you want to say, well, why wouldn't God provide for me in the future? This is just, well, it's, it's easy when we're sitting here in the pew to have that kind of faith. But there's always, you know, sometimes it's the end of the month comes along. For everyone, it's different seasons. Maybe you get a health scare and you think, how am I going to pay for all of these medical bills? Or maybe your daughter's seriously dating somebody and you think, how am I going to pay for the wedding? <laughs> um, and I just remember when Kim and I, our wilderness time was seminary. That's when we were like most sort of destitute. And, and even after that, early on in the ministry, we were just struggling financially. We found out we were having a baby and we, I was just like really worried. How am I going to afford diapers? Because I heard, you know, diapers are basically... Well, they're like a dollar a piece or something like that. And, um, and then babies go through them, like some of our babies, like four or five of them a day. <laughs> and this is from the time that they're born until when? I mean, when does this ever end? Like in the twos? And then you've got more kids? And I just thought, my whole life's going to be about diapers. And how am I going to afford this? Um, of course, there's the cloth diaper thing, but yeah. Um, and right at that time, we were invited to like a baby shower. And at the baby shower, we got all sorts of gifts from people. But one of the things that they did is everybody brought diapers and they rolled it into this giant, it looked like a wedding cake. I don't know if that's just something that they do. I, I've never seen it before in my life. It was a big wedding cake of disposable diapers. And I was like, this is God's provision. This is like a tower of God's provision. This is a, an Ebenezer of diapers to God's provision. But it got better because when we opened the diapers, they'd put money in the diapers. Um, in plastic, so it wasn't, uh, you know, unhygienic. In little Ziploc bags, there was money rolled up in the diapers. And it was, it, that's like a testament. I think of that sometimes because, you know, now the very kids that um, needed those diapers are getting to the age where they need college tuition. <laughs> and I start thinking, but, and there's so many of these kids that I have. Um, and it sounds like all of them want to go to college. And then I just remember the little Ebenezer Tower of, Diapers, you know, and it's, for each of us, we're going to have different ones of those, right? Where God provided for us. And you just have to remind yourself, don't worry about the future. He's going to provide the same way he did in the past. The second part we see here is the protection. So still under God's resume, he's moved from provision to protection. Verse 11, the Lord gives the word. The women who announce the news are a great host. The kings of the armies, they flee. They flee. The women at home divide the spoil. Though you men lie among the sheepfolds, the wings of a dove covered with silver, its pinions with shimmering gold. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalman, O mountain of God. 
mountain of Bashan. O many-peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many-peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Yes, where Yahweh will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice, ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Okay, so this is where we, we start bringing this imagery of the mountains up again. So we've mentioned Sinai before. Here's another mountain range, um, the, the heights of Bashan, the many-peaked mountain. This is what we would call today the Golan Heights. Maybe you've heard of the Golan Heights when you're watching about the news. Uh, you're watching the news about Israel and the war with Hamas. This is going to come up. Anytime there's a war in Israel, the Golan Heights make the news because the Golan Heights is such a strategic place to be. Very easy to defend. So once you're there, that's yours. And you can lob, in these days, you can lob rockets down over, the, over your target. So it's a very vulnerable um, uh, area around there if your enemy has it. So it's an important place for you to own, to keep. And you would think that if God was picking a mountain to establish his glory, to move the Ark of the Covenant from the house of Obed-Edom to a mountain, he would pick Bashan. The, the, the great heights, the many peaked mountains, beautiful, strategic, high, and instead he picks little Mount Zion down in Jerusalem. And so there's this dissonance then. Just to, to remind you, if, if you're not familiar with the story, after the Israelites sent the ark into battle against the Philistines, it was captured. When it came back, 70,000 people died um, as part of that plague in looking into the ark, and um, when the ark was being moved later on with uh, David, a guy called Uzzah touched the ark, and he got struck dead because it was too holy, and so people were just freaked out about the ark, just like anyone who's seen Indiana Jones, right? Um, you, you don't mess with the ark. People die around the ark. So they, they parked it in this guy's home, Obed-Edom, and they were in his garage, and they were like, let's just see what happens to Obed-Edom. You're the guinea pig, and he's like, oh my goodness, and, and then he's, he just gets blessed and blessed and blessed and blessed, and so David's like, okay, it's safe. God's, God's over killing people. Okay, it's like, whew. Um, can I keep all the blessing? Yes, you can keep all the blessing. Thanks for being our guinea pig. And then they move the ark to Mount Zion for the first time. Now it's going to Jerusalem and eventually the temple will be built to house the ark. Okay, so this is where David's taking it. Solomon builds the temple there in the next generation. But there's this little problem. Why not Bashan? So that's why he says, oh, um, many peak mountain, mountain of Bashan, why do you look with hatred? So the mountain of God, Sinai, which is another good place to put it, that's where God was before, but that's far away. Bashan, they're not getting it, Zion's getting it, and he says, don't look with hatred. Why? Because this is the mount that God desired for his abode, yes, where Yahweh will dwell forever. This is what God has chosen. So this song is a celebration of the significance of Sinai, the mountain of God where the, the law came, the significance, is it towers over even the mountains of Bashan. That now, all of that significance is being moved and centralized in one place, in Zion. Why? Because God chose to do that. That's where he chose to put it. And in verse 17, it says, The chariots of God are twice ten thousand, thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. So, the... What happened at Sinai is the Ten Commandments came and they were put in the ark. So the tablets are in the ark. And the manna from the provision, there's some of that manna in the ark. And that ark is now in the sanctuary. It's in the holy place, in the safe place, in where God's going to dwell on Mount Zion 
um, in Jerusalem. So in that sense, Sinai and the law in the ark has now moved. And all the significance of God in his presence with Moses has moved to God in his presence with David. And it's the Davidic dynasty that's going to be established in this place. It's a very significant thing that happened in history with this transfer. And at the time, it didn't make much sense to the people, but David got it. And as his psalm is inspired by God, we can now look back and see, okay, David understood this was a very significant thing that God had chosen to do. But the, um, look at the protection God has here. The chariots of God are twice 10,000, thousands upon thousands. I mean, this is just a way of just saying innumerable, more than we can count. Just a little pet peeve of mine, by the way, is when people say a thousand means innumerable. Like a th the millennial kingdom is a thousand years. Oh, but it's, it's, that just means forever. No, it doesn't. A thousand always means a thousand. When Hebrew poets want to say an innumerable amount, they say things like this, thousands upon thousands, twice 10,000. That's what they say. It sounds like they're making the point that you can't number them. Anyway, that's not in the psalm. Um, and the, the best part about these chariots is that the Lord is among them, it says. Do you remember when Elisha uh, was calm, even though there were all the Syrian chariots around him, and he called his butler um, Gazi, who was freaking out because of all the chariots, and he said to them, we have more chariots of fire, than, I mean, you know, more chariots and horses than they do. And he says, no, we don't. We don't have any. Um, Second Kings 6, 15, it says, um, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then, you know, the stage direction would be Gehazi kind of takes Elijah's temperature. Are you hallucinating something? I don't see anyone. But then Elisha prayed and said, Oh, Yahweh, please open his eyes that he may see. And Yahweh opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So they were angelic warriors on their horses. Angel horses? That's what it says. Um, and chariots gleaming with fire and, and many, many multitudes of them to protect God's prophet. And, and God's prophet had the ability to see that. Now, we don't know why we are as safe as we are, but my thinking is because wherever you go, God's, God's got you. And the way that looks sometimes is that there may be an angelic escort if that's what he wants for you. He is able to do it. He has done it. And that's what David is drawing his confidence from in this psalm. And just a little footnote. It doesn't mean Christians never get mugged. It doesn't mean that Christians never have their car stolen. It doesn't mean that God's people aren't vulnerable to the sin-cursed world we live in. You think of the Israel, 400 years in slavery. Job, smitten by Satan. David, hunted like an animal for many months. Joseph, sold into slavery. But in this psalm, David reminds us that God is giving oversight to all of that. And he wields his power to defend us. Now look at verse 18. You ascended on high. This is, this is interesting. Um, listen carefully to the words. There's one word here that's going to play a part. I'm going to play a little game with you with it. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious that Yahweh God may dwell there. Blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. Salah. Now, did that verse sound familiar, more familiar to you than the other verses in Psalm 68? Let's put it that way. He ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train, receiving gifts among men. 
That is a passage that shows up in Ephesians chapter 4, where Paul quotes it, referring to Christ, but he changes something in it. So see if you can spot the difference. I'll read it in the New Testament, Ephesians 4, 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and then he quotes Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does that mean? But also he descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. So did you spot the difference there? In Psalm 67, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of, a, he led a host of captives and he received gifts from men. In Ephesians, it says, and he gave gifts to men. So what's going on there? Well, Paul is alluding to what they would have known of that psalm and he's quoting that psalm and drawing on it and the provision of God through the conquest and when you would conquer somebody, you would lead a host of captives, all the people, all your prisoners of wars behind you. And in the triumph, you would, um, you would give gifts to men and you would receive gifts from the people that you had subdued in that you've taken all of their stuff now and they have to pay you taxes and all that from now on. So here in Ephesians 4, it says, when he ascended on high, he, um, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. And then he goes on talking about how he gave teachers to the church and apostles and prophets and things. So it's quite an interesting thing that he's doing here. What he's saying is that Jesus descended from heaven to earth in order to free us from spiritual captivity. In the same way that the ark moved from Sinai to Jerusalem so that there was blessing in Jerusalem, just so Jesus moved from heaven to earth so that there's blessing in the church. So it's an interesting little parallel. He's, he's, he's looking at what David said about the ark moving from and the covenant of God and the, the law from Sinai, moving from Sinai to a new place so that Jerusalem can be the place of God's dwelling and the blessing will come from there and the nations will flow to him. And then when Paul picks it up, he says, yeah, it's like when Jesus moved from the place of his dwelling in heaven to the place of his dwelling on earth. And in doing that, we get gifts because he was able to do that. And so Paul actually changes the wording there. So we he, he is giving gifts, and now, where is Jesus? He's in the church, and so the blessing comes to us. So it's just an interesting little parallel there in the New Testament. So God freed slavery in the Old, uh, sorry. So in the Old Testament, God freed people from physical captivity and slavery and gave them physical gifts. In the New Testament, God freed people from spiritual captivity and slavery to give them spiritual gifts. And so my point is just sometimes bad things happen, but they happen for a reason. We can't always comprehend them, but God is doing something in history that makes sense later on. As Martin Luther said in his hymn, and though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's the attitude we should have. Though this world be filled with devils, we have the right man on our side. And he, with one word, he can fell him. So that's God's resume for help. The other two sections go a little quicker. Um, God's violence is seen in verse 20 and verse 23. Verse 20, um, 
Our God is a God of salvation, and to Yahweh Adonai belongs deliverance from death. But God will strike the heads of his enemies, the hairy crown of him who walks in his guilty ways. The Lord said, I will bring them back from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea, that you may strike your feet in their blood, that the tongues of your dogs may have their portion from the foe. Yikes. <laughs> something, it sounds like something Stephen King would write, right? Um, this is an image of God's peoples where the enemies of God have been brought back so that God's people can triumph over them. Even the ones that were conquered in the sea, the, the Egyptians um, in the Exodus, get brought back so that you can trample on them and show your victory and that you can strike the puddles of blood that they've left with your feet and that your pit bulls can tear their bodies apart. This is not an image that we put on flannel graphs for our kids, right? This is very graphic, violent language. And the point David is making is, yes, we serve a God who is kind and filled with loving kindness and very patient and very merciful. And all of these attributes of God might make you think you can take advantage of him. He's the grandpa that always gives you candy no matter how naughty you've been. And David wants to remind us, just because God is filled with mercy and compassion and forgiveness and loving kindness does not mean that his enemies are going to get away. God is just and he is powerful and he is going to wipe the floor with them. And so when we look at vulnerable people being preyed upon by God's enemies, we want justice now. We want to take matters into our own hands now. And sometimes we just don't get that justice now. But David is reminding us that that justice is coming and he will do to them far worse than you could even do to them. God is not weak or squeamish. He's a warrior and he's out for justice. Jesus wasn't weak either. Jesus was meek. He was strength under control. You've heard that, you know, like a giant killer whale. I mean, those are very, very, very powerful creatures, but they'll come and that little tiny little trainer lady, you know, she blows a little whistle and they come and they get a little fish from her and they jump through the little hoops and they'll come and kiss her and nudge her. But if she steps wrong, they will chop her in half. <laughs> they are strong. They will make short shrift of that little lady. And so there's strength there, but it's under control. That's what God is like. That's what Jesus was like on earth. He was, he was immensely powerful, and yet he restrained that power and allowed himself to even be a victim of violence. If you think of the crucifixion that way, the, the false trial and the mocking and the beating and the torture and then the crucifixion, he allowed that. But when he returns, he will return and make short shrift of his enemies. If you're you have not taken the time to get on his side, it'll be too late and it'll be terrifying. Revelation 19, 11 says, I saw the heavens open. This is John speaking. Behold, a white horse. Yes, there's another angel horse. Um, the one sitting on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. This is Jesus judging and making war. Verse 13, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood and the name of which he is called is the word of God. And from his mouth comes a sword which will strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron from Psalm 2. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. 
And on his robe and his thigh, he has the name King of Kings and Lord of Lords. I mean, (laughs) you do not want to mess with Jesus. He's not just the kind grandpa, old man upstairs that gives you what you need. He is a judge and he is watching what you're doing and he's watching what everyone's doing and he's keeping track of absolutely all of it and that which he does not set right in this life, he will set right in the end. So that's God's violence. And then finally we see God's triumph in verses 24 to 35. And we see God's people rejoice in his power and then we see even the nations who aren't God's people rejoice in his power. So look at God's people rejoicing in his power. Verse 24, your Procession is seen, O God, the procession of my God, my King, into the sanctuary. The singers in front, the musicians last, between them virgins playing tambourines. So this is a picture of the ark being led in to Mount Zion. Bless God in the great congregation, Yahweh, O you who are of Israel's fountain. There is Benjamin, the least of them, in the lead. And the princes of Judah in their throng. And the princes of Zebulun. The princes of Naphtali. Summon your power, O God. The power, O God, by which you have worked us. So the main point I want to make here is just that in this procession, this triumphant procession, it's God's triumph. They're heading to Zion. Who's there? And he just names a sampling. Benjamin, Zebulun, Judah, Naphtali. Who are these people? They're the Israelites. They're the tribes of Israel. They're, they're the They're God's people. And so God's people will rejoice at this triumph. And that's when God gets maximum glory. And so even when bad things are happening now, we must remember he has a long-term, a long-range plan. And his game plan, he wins. And we get to partake in that victory when evil is banished. But secondly, we see not only do God's people rejoice, but even the other nations recognize his power in verse 29. And following, because of your temple at Jerusalem... Kings shall bear gifts to you, meaning kings of the other nations. Rebuke the beasts that dwell among the reeds, the herd of bulls with the calves of the people. Commentators seem to think that he's using animals as a metaphor for the different nations, which is a common thing that happens among the prophets. Trample underfoot those who lust after tribute. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Nobles shall come from Egypt. Cush shall hasten to stretch out her hands to God. O kingdoms of the earth. Sing to God, sing praises to the Lord, Selah, to him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens. Behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice. So just like in the first group of people in God's triumph, they're Benjamin, Naphtali, and Zebulun, and Judah. These are God's people. Here we have a sampling of people that aren't God's people yet. Um, Egypt, Cush, which is uh, Ethiopia, uh, and then the kingdoms of the earth. And the, the point here simply is that in this triumph, it's not only God's people that recognize God's power, it's going to be the whole world. The whole world recognizes God's power. Can you think of a New Testament reference that says the same thing about Jesus? Romans 14, 11, for it's written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Paul says in Philippians as well, every tongue will confess, those on earth and those under the earth and those in the heavens, the whole universe will be convinced of God's power. And then we have, as the conclusion of the psalm, this verse, verse 34, ascribe power to God, whose majesty is over Israel, whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. And we can just take from that that the, the gospel of God's greatness is an awe-inspiring doctrine. 
And it is wonderful news. It is good news that he can triumph over his enemies. My warning to you is don't be one of his enemies. Don't be one of his enemies. You cannot stand up to God. I know whatever sin there is in your life seems very attractive, seems very powerful of you now. God is more powerful, and he's more attractive. And you need to turn your back on your sin and embrace God through Jesus Christ and what he's done. And that's when you can live, and you will be on his side. So don't whine about fear and instability. Live life with confidence that God is on the throne, that he rules forever and ever. Don't take matters into your own hands. Remember that God is a justice warrior. Let's pray. Father, we're, we're grateful to you for your word and how it always reminds us of your glory and your power. I pray that you would help us to live even this week to come, overcoming lives, lives of confidence that the sin in our lives has no power over you, that the grave has no power over you, that the forces of Satan have no power over you, and that because of your great power and your loving provision, your long resume of works that you have done on behalf of the needy and the helpless, we can run to you as a father and ask for our needs knowing that you will give them to us. And so we pray that you would help us to appreciate those things and to bless your name. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.